This is an interview on the neuroscience of architectural attention with Mark Johnson. The interviewers were Andrew Ferentinos and Joseph Bedford, produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. The interview took place in MIT at the School of Architecture in October 2012. I'm Joseph Bedford. I'm a doctoral candidate in architecture at Princeton University. I'm Andrew Ferentinos. I'm a practicing architect and recent graduate of MIT's master's program. Mark Johnson is a philosopher whose work in the 1980s with George Lakoff explored metaphors in language to show how language had its basis in structures of the body. And I'm Mark Johnson, professor of philosophy at the University of Oregon. His work has more recently turned towards advances in cognitive science and draws upon new findings in the field to develop his ideas about the relation of cognition to structures of the body. We met Mark at MIT in October 2012 to talk about his work. The conversation began by asking him to discuss the old model of cognition. We have inherited, in the Western tradition at least, a pretty profound dualism about mind and body. And a lot of just ordinary folks who never think about it think they have a, a disembodied soul that happens to inhabit a body for some period of time. That's the kind of dualism that I think recent cognitive science is um, overturning. Descartes in some places gave it the strongest statement. He'd say there's mental substance and there's bodily substance and they're fundamentally different in kind. One's extended, the body, mind is not extended. Um, that's, that's called substance dualism, and that's, that's a fairly extreme view. In traditional um, Anglo-American philosophy of the 20th century, I like to say, guess what? They never had bodies. There was this coming together, a syncopation of these views of artificial intelligence and what was called information processing psychology back in the 50s and 60s, analytic philosophy of language and Chomsky and linguistics. It all seemed to come together and create this new heaven where, you know, they, but it, it left the body out. They had a functionalist view of, you know, artificial intelligence, that the mind is a com computational program. It's the formal operations performed on abstract symbols. After a brief discussion of former methods of research, such as linguistics and psychology, we turned to discuss the development of new brain imaging techniques in the cognitive sciences and how this new data is changing our model of cognition. And, and the neuroscience is probably the place where the biggest changes are in the works. I mean, this is all new stuff. It's amazing, you know, at least in philosophy, 20 years ago, we didn't have any of this. And all of a sudden, I mean, it's really, it's, it's a very striking change because we developed the imaging techniques. And before it was all armchair 
claims about what the neuroscience would do with very little evidence. And now it's just opened up. And when the neuroscience comes along, it does two things. One is it can help us understand aspects of the processing that we can be consciously aware of. And it can also test out certain hypotheses. And I'll give you an example of this. So Lakoff and I claimed that, we, that a lot of our metaphors, not all of them, but a lot of them have body-based source domains. And we understand abstract concepts like knowledge, wisdom, truth, mind, you know, various moral concepts on the basis of bodily experiences. Well, if that's true, take, take this understanding as grasping metaphor, you know, like get in, get a handle on something and that's a slippery idea and all. Well then, um, now with neural imaging, people are beginning to test that out. So first they, they check what neuronal clusters are activated when you're actually grasping something. And if we're right, when you use it, process it metaphorically, some of those areas ought to be enacted. If they're not, we're in trouble. Mark explained how a new model of cognition had been emerging over the last decades. In this model, cognition was no longer based on the relation of abstract language to essential structures of the mind. Rather, cognition was now increasingly seen as emerging historically, through long processes of environmental habituation. Over the long period of human evolution, such environmental habituation had led to durable structures of thought, but these were not essential. They were rather open to constant interaction with the environment, technology, and the use of language. The, the new view is to try to bring empirical work to bear in the exploration of where meaning comes from how conceptualization is possible. If you, if you don't think that human beings are these bifurcated creatures, then here's what you don't have. You take away the standard claim that there are some ultimate universal structures, whether they're meaning structures or syntax structures of language or logic, you know, that sort of drop down on us from somewhere, or platonic heaven or Frege's third realm, some transcendent structure that human beings in different cultures can plug into. There's very little evidence that could support such a view. And in fact, I think the, the vast majority of the empirical work now that's going on gives the lie to that. So what you have to do is tell a story about whatever phenomena you're interested in, whether it be architecture or music or language or whatever. You have to tell a story of the emergence of levels of functional organization and therefore of meaning and various capacities emerging out of increased complexity of the interactions. The old view of perception was that it's a passive being affected by um, something outside you and then recording that affectation. The new view is that perception is only possible because organisms are active creatures in an environment. Given Mark's idea that language has its basis in structures of the human body, we turn to discuss a criticism of his position, that raised by the critical suspicion of cultural essentialisms. We raise this topic with the context of recent architectural theory in the 1980s, 
such as that of Christian Norberg Schulz or Chris Alexander in the background. These theorists tended to suggest that there was a universal, existential language of architectural forms, one that transcended history. Mark discussed this problem. While he described how the natural fact of the body is a constraint upon language, he explained how culture and meaning always remain historical, with every culture in history interpreting the body differently. There's no way for any one culture to make a claim on the own no, interpretation no, 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 of that no, innate all. structure. Mm -hmm. right. But <clears throat> you've touched on a sore point for me because that's what people want to do, whether it be architecturally or morality. The book I'm just finishing is about morality. That's moral fundamentalism. It's a kind of literalism about these structures. You know, there's only one interpretation. This Alexander said there were like 257 forms. I, I can't remember that. Oh, how many of them there were. You know, he had things like, what, shady space or... <laughs> yeah. We can understand and engage cultural creations because they're not absolutely foreign to us. They, we can resonate with it at a bodily level. And then we have to learn the nuances as, you know, of, of the cultural variation. It's not that we're in two different worlds and there's no way they can intersect. You know, there is some shared basis. There are these shared structures that are significant for creatures like us and they are good candidates for universality you're going to have issues about in significance of containment and containment it's multivalent it can be protection or it can be confinement you know so it's not just the meaning is obvious but the meanings emerge from the kinds of bodily experiences with those things and you know that we have verticality we we tend to align you know um verticality you know up with good down with bad but also then there's up with more less is down it's a hypothesis that if you look around the world in different language groups you will find those structures recurrent structures we can only see certain wavelengths of light. We can only hear certain uh, frequencies of, of sound. And there are all these constraints on there. And then given our bodily makeup and our environmental structure, there are gonna be these kinds of forms. That is correct. The thing I'd add to that is the ways in which cultures can articulate them can give you variation. So it's like theme and very, you know, so yes, there's gonna be containment, but the particularities of how that gets articulated could be culturally different. On the one hand, this universal level of, as you described, the kind of vertical structure, mm -hmm. horizontal structure mm -hmm. of, of embodiment. But that doesn't foreclose history being open. History remains open. Yes. There's a um, myriad number of ways in our own history or in, in other cultures yes. um, whereby that st structure would be interpreted differently. So it doesn't close off innovation. Yeah. Yes. Can I give you one yeah. example of that? And that, that is, I, the, um, and I'm not going to do this in architecture, but I'll do this with respect to um, language. We have metaphors in English having to do with mouth mouth, tongue, teeth. So we can say, you know, um, ideas are food. You gotta have raw facts, half-baked ideas. You chew on something for a while and students spit back 
their professor's ideas, they regurgitate them. You know, we've got this vast metaphor having to do with processing food is a metaphor for thought. Okay, but in Chinese, in Mandarin Chinese, they've got the same basic structures, but they have articulated them and come up with phrases in the language in a far more nuanced way, where you get many different aspects of what part of the mouth it's in and whether it's salty or sweet. And so it's variation because they have so much of a, a more fine textured way of talking about aesthetic judgment as taste, you know, and thinking as, as chewing or tasting and that sort of thing than we do. Same basic bodily orientation and basis for it, but much more subtle and nuanced and variegated articulation of that metaphor. And, that, and I, I think that's, that's a general account of how you have these shared structures, but then the um, different cultural variations. After questioning Mark on the phenomena of essentialism and relativism, our conversation turned to the more general phenomena of how structures of thought are related to matter and space in history. We wanted to raise the question of how architecture can be understood as a kind of medium in history against whose form different conventional structures of cultural thought have been manifested. What do you think of the kind of potential thesis that there is some kind of correlation between a typical um, mode of making architecture or thinking about architecture and a typical way of thinking or reasoning in philosophy? let's say, a connection between neoclassical architecture yeah, yeah, um, of the kind yeah. of the plinth, the building up, the mm -hmm. structures, um, building an edifice. Rectilinearities of yeah, a certain sort. Yeah. And the kind of metaphorical structures of that neoclassical architecture in, say, Kant's third critique yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Um, and therefore, does the innovation of the spatial type in history where, where modern architecture breaks from mm -hmm. the classical tradition, opens up fluid spaces, right. free plans, right. um, is there a correlation between that and thought structures on a general level. Yes. Um, I, I, I absolutely think so. I think you're absolutely right about that. And it's interesting. I've got a, and a colleague I, from another university, Robert Hahn, is, he's a, does Greek philosophy, but he's interested in how philosophy emerged in the context of Greek architecture and material practices. And so um, Anaximander said that the universe was a column drum. And so Hans gone and studied in Greece. That's how I started going to Greece with him years ago. He went and studied column drama. And what, what was going on here? How did this become a model for some abstract philosophical notion? He's writing a book right now on how notions of proof arose from Greek architectural practices. And it's, it's fascinating stuff. I think you're right. If you, if you look through history, you would see why, you know, like I, you know, why is it that we get foundationalist epistemologies or theories of knowledge, you know, and and what were the material practices that could have affected people, and and it doesn't have to just be cause and effect relation, but I mean it can be a whole thing happening at a time, you know. I mean you could say well the the neoclassical architecture was a manifestation of a kind of abstract you know, rationality that was operative in the Enlightenment. Well, but, you know, I, I want to say that maybe the interactions are a little more subtle and nuanced than, than just that. It's not that there was this pure rational structure and it happened to be instantiated both in architecture and in philosophy.
Given this background idea that architecture, whether in ancient Greece or in the Enlightenment, can be understood to have a general impact as a medium on the structure of thought in a culture, we raise the question of how architecture responds to an environment of shifting media as ever greater technologies of the image emerge in place of architecture. We asked Mark what he thought the general impact upon cognition might be in this shifting media landscape. Mark's thoughts on the matter were that new media afford new possibilities and cut off old. He considered that there is likely a kind of redistribution of attentional resources taking place, and so architecture is potentially losing ground to other media in terms of its effects upon our attention. Yet he commented that new technologies of the image are still likely to activate the same metaphorical structures of embodiment, even if this is through empathy. Now I know that a lot of people are beginning to think about this. You know, just what do these technologies do? And how do they structure our experience? I mean, everybody's walking around a beautiful campus in Oregon and they're all looking at their cell phones. And I'm saying, you know, holy shit, you know? There's some things you can't get off that, mm. you know? This whole sense of being in a, a space that's activating tactile, auditory, olfactory images and all, you know? And that's all going on there. But then when, when the attention gets directed away from that, yes, there's still some of that going on, but there's a loss. Um, it, but it is not disembodied. That's the thing I want to say. That one of the things we've learned as a result of studies on mirror neurons, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this phenomenon. This is very important for the kind of stuff you're talking about. I'll just say a few words about that. Um, these Italians, Rizzolatti and uh, Galesi in Parma were doing these studies um, where they had um, monkeys hooked up um, recording brain activity, you know, when they were performing various motor ac actions like grasping a banana. And so they, they monkey could grasp a banana and they'd see what parts of the motor cortex and premotor cortex were activated. Well, the monkey was watching, watched a, a researcher grasp a banana and some of those same areas fired off. So when I see you pick up that cup with a certain grasp, I'm really connected to you because I'm actually not firing to the level where my hand goes out to pick up a cup, but there, there is some activation in the areas of my brain that would be involved there. And this is important for, I mean, um, any kind of interaction in space then. If, if you see this bottle of water that I've got here, well, it's a visual experience, but it also, there's some tactile activation as though, you know, what would be the gripping and what weight would it have and all that. And so it's this multimodal, multi-sensory or intermodal kinds of engagement we have. When you are seeing things, whatever the technology is for it, so you're getting some embodied activation. We ended the discussion by bringing the conversation to the topic of artistic creativity and innovation. We asked Mark if our conventions of thought are bound to structures of embodiment, how can there be innovation? We asked him what role he thought art and architecture have in relating to these conventional structures or in purposefully defying them. These perhaps common universal structures or meanings, um, do you, are you suggesting that architects 
or anybody consciously accept these metaphors or can we somehow throw them out or avoid them and conceive of buildings in other ways? I mean, I'm sure that we can conceive of, of a building other than as a body yeah. or as a society. Yeah. The human body part projection is massive in languages around the world and it's not surprising it plays a fundamental role in architecture. But th there's all these detailed studies of body part projections in languages that are very different. But it's not surprising that you've got the head of the bed and the foot of the bed, you know, and the face of the mountain and all of that. Can we just consciously manipulate those away? I don't think we can. So abstract thought relies partially on primary metaphors, mm -hmm. neurally yeah. instantiated in our brains, yes. resulting in, one could say, maybe conventions mm -hmm. or commonly yeah. held yeah. meanings. Yeah. Right. Conventionalized and if, meanings. Yes. Yeah. And if we can talk about art for a minute, mm -hmm. or, or architecture, yeah. which is to some widely thought of defying convention, um, expe expectations and going against cliches, what then are artists' relationship to these metaphors on the one hand, it seems like art strives to rewire mm -hmm. our brain mm -hmm. by kind of tinkering with metaphors mm -hmm. or pushing yeah. them around, yeah. but yeah. you're constrained by these very limits themselves. Yeah. So. This is, gets at one of the most profound problems with cognition. How is novelty possible? <laughs> Why do we not just reproduce the same templates that we habitually develop? But there is novelty. Let me take metaphor as an example. George Lakoff and Mark Turner back in the 80s wrote a book called More Than Cool Reason, A Field Guide to Poetic Metaphor. So they wanted to say metaphor was always thought in the tradition to be the great creative moment. So it was to be owned by the literary people because poets use this and novelists. And it's a place where we break the bounds of our conventional understanding and the emergence of new meaning is possible. So what Lakoff and Turner showed in that book was that the new that emerges doesn't simply, isn't radically other. It, 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 it is an extension of aspects of our conventionalized metaphors. And I'll give you Lakoff's favorite example of this. We had analyzed all these metaphors for love. And one of them was love is a journey. You say, look how far we've come, we're at a crossroads, we've hit a dead-end street. That could be about spatial movement, or it could be about our relationship. So we, we have in our culture this very well-worked-out, highly articulated love is a journey. That's a conventional metaphor. Um, Lakoff had a student who brought in a popular piece back in the early 90s, and it had a line, we're driving in the fast lane on the freeway of love. Now, I bet no one ever until that moment used, put together the words freeway of love. So that's novel. But it's not radical, miracle creativity. Because what is it? It, 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 it activates love is a journey. And then it specifies in the source domain knowledge that you have about freeways and traveling. And so that's one kind of creativity where it's, it, you, you aren't just breaking free of all conceptualization, because I want to say, if you did that, how could anyone understand you? So it's got to engage something of what was there, 
And, and that's one of the main ways it does that. Now, that doesn't answer the question. I mean, how do people come up with the, these things? No one has a good answer to that, I think, yet. So um, the fact that we don't have an answer to that very clearly is, um, you know, we're in good company. <laughs> you can't arbitrarily make these things up and get them to work. That's the point. I want to say there's a range of constraints given the way we've, been, we've come to be wired up. If our bodies change, you know, you were talking about these changing technologies, that's part, you know, that, that may open up new possibilities for engagement because we haven't stopped evolving. Who's to say? I mean, this is what's possible now, but these technologies are going to have effects. I, and um, I don't have any insight about where that's going to go. Um, but I, I'm, I'm resistant to the idea that creativity is a kind of arbitrary, random leap, you know, that is unconnected to these patterns of meaning. So even moves to be creative that try as much as possible to deny all meanings, things like the absurd you know, in surrealist work, if we were to follow the love metaphor, to say the highway of yeah, love. we're driving so, in the fast lane on the freeway of love. So the typewriter of love, yeah, or right. the frog of yeah. love, or something. If yeah. you if you go with an absurd yeah. stance absurd. on the creative, yeah, um, that would be to try to refuse all metaphors. But does that also, therefore, by negation, still prove the metaphorical structure? Yeah. So you know, with with that surrealist stuff, and um, like you say, they might say the typewriter of love, and you can in a tortured fashion if you wanted to you can start trying to say what's the source domain what could that mean but you know they were just trying to do that to shatter the conceptualization and stop these forms of thinking they wanted to unsettle you you know they didn't want you to really process that as meaningful i think I mean, and especially when they, the, the ones who just threw stuff together, out, you know, cut up a bunch of words out of the newspaper and then just throw them together and see how they come out. Some of that is nonsense. And sometimes they wanted the nonsense to stop you from running your standard categorizations and conceptualizations. Okay, fine. But that, that doesn't mean it's meaningful. And so I, I want to say, okay, you can disrupt processes sometimes but what you really need to do you need to rewire so you need to activate connections and strengthen connections that go in different ways and and so I think they're a good example the data stuff some of it is just nonsense and then some of it actually you can make sense of we can say something about how you can make sense of it and guess what you know it's going to get tied back to the kinds of things we engage in these certain significant ways um, through our bodily and our social experience. And yes, it was fun at the party when we got drunk and did our daughter's thing and well, aren't we clever and had a good time. Then you've got to live, you've got to live and engage people. And it's, you know, it's true that you have to kind of inhibit and disrupt in order to open up a space for this. Um, and so I'll just end that by saying it's not a miracle. It's not, you know, like that old cartoon where this scientist at MIT is um, writing, he covers an entire board with differential equations. And then at the end he says, and then a miracle happens, you know? Well, no, you know, a miracle doesn't happen. Creativity isn't a miracle. <laughs>
You've been listening to an interview on The Neuroscience of Architectural Attention with Mark Johnson. Thanks to Joseph Bedford, Doctoral Candidate in Architecture at Princeton University School of Architecture, and Andrew Ferentinos, Architect and Adjunct Professor at Wentworth Institute of Technology, for being our hosts, and to Mark Johnson, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Oregon, for being our guest. The interview was produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture.